Okay, great. So um, I think everyone can see my screen and I think folks can hear me. So we'll, we'll begin. Um, first of all, I just wanna welcome everyone uh, today to um, the AHPBA uh, webinar that focuses on uh, COVID-19 and HPB surgery. My name is Tim Pollack and I am the uh, current president of the AHPBA. And we're lucky to be joined um, by a number of um, internationally renowned HPB surgeons who will be sharing their experience around the COVID-19 crisis and how they have been managing the, the situation relative uh, to their clinical practice, as well as some of the other challenging issues uh, specifically around our educational mission. I'm just gonna uh, share with you some initial slides um, regarding COVID-19. Um, as you know, on uh, January 7th of 2020, a novel, uh, novel coronavirus belonging to the same family of pathogens responsible for the previous SARS and MERS outbreak was isolated from the bronchi bronchial alveolar var samples of three patients suffering from pneumonia of an unknown cause in Wuhan, China. The new virus was named um, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, otherwise known as SARS-CoV-2, uh, uh, and the clinical syndrome associated with it is known by COVID-19. As of March 11th, there was over 120,000 cases in 114 countries with over 4,000 uh, deaths, uh, making this a uh, international uh, pandemic. Um, the specifics of the uh, virus are, can be seen on this screen. Um, when um, one is exposed to um, the virus, there, has, there are antibodies that appear in the blood after about 10 to 20 days. Um, with regards to the uh, environmental stability of the virus, the uh, half-life um, aerosolized form is about one hour, although the virus can last um, on surfaces up to one to seven um, hours. The R0 associated with the virus, which is the number of new cases directly generated from a single case, is in the range of about two to four. These are some recent data provided by GE Health that are um, just a um, couple days old. And as of two days ago, there were um, two a million um, uh, cases and the most recent doubling time um, was 12 days. Um, you can see here that the number of active cases per 1 million uh, individuals in the world was about 178. And if you look at the global summary as of uh, April 15th, you can see that the United States had over 500,000 active cases um, with um, over 2,000 um, uh, deaths um, and roughly uh, 4,200 patients who had recovered. You can see other countries are listed here, including Italy, which we obviously have heard uh, much about uh, in the press, um, who has been um, a country that has been uh, quite devastated uh, by the disease. If we look at the geographic variation of the disease um, around the world, um, here are some recent data um, from Europe and the Middle East. And we can see that the most active cases per 1 million individuals right now are in Ireland, Spain, Belgium, and uh, Italy, with roughly um, 724 uh, cases per 1 million uh, individuals in this region. If we look at Latin South America, the um, overall uh, prevalence is somewhat lower at 86 per 1 million individuals. And the countries that are most uh, impacted um, as of uh, April 15th uh, are Panama, Ecuador, and the Dominican uh, Republic. Looking at the United States, um, the prevalence is uh, quite high at um, 1,490 per 1 million um, in this region. And as we all know and have heard, the tri-state area involving uh, New York and New Jersey has been hit the hardest. And you can see these numbers are extremely high at around 9,000 uh, per million um, in New York and over 7,000 uh, per million um, in New Jersey. If we look at trends in active cases by uh, country since uh, March 1st, we can see the uh, dramatic increase in the trend of active cases with um, the uh, countries having the um, highest um, active case number now being uh, Ireland, Spain, Belgium, Italy, 
and a U.S. Uh, not uh, far behind. And you can see the uh, percent change in active cases over the last seven days, highlighting uh, Italy and then uh, Panama um, in Central America. If we look at the overall fatality rate, again, we can see that the fatality rate in Italy has been uh, quite high. Um, as of April 15th, an overall uh, fatality rate, which is defined as the deaths over the number of confirmed cases, which is in the range of about 13%. Here in the United States, we can see that the um, uh, fatality rate is more in the range of about 4%, obviously still uh, quite high. Um, specifically, drilling down uh, with regards to the United States, again, you can see here, the regional differences um, with the states with the most active cases being uh, New York and New Jersey, and the estimated uh, hospitalizations per 100 beds being quite high at 59 and 42 in New York and New Jersey. So with that um, as our um, backdrop and to provide some context to our discussion, um, as I mentioned, we're lucky today to have uh, really a, a great panel of individuals um, who have joined us today uh, to discuss this important topic. And our first uh, speaker is uh, Dr. Sean Clary, who is the secretary of the AHPBA and a hepatopancreatic biliary surgeon at the uh, Mayo Clinic. Um, I think I will forego any uh, longer introduction uh, than that and simply turn things over to Dr. Clary. Sean. Thanks uh, so much, Dr. Pollack. Uh, again, thank you everyone for uh, for joining the uh, the call. And I guess uh, the purpose of this really is just to get uh, slightly different perspectives to see how every institution and every group is handling this, as well as uh, the issues that are germane to our specialty. So, if we could advance the slide, Tim, you're going to advance the slides, right? I will advance slides. And let me just interject here. I would ask that folks use the chat room and we will be answering questions via the chat room just because of the large number of uh, individuals on the call and I'll keep an eye on that. So thank you for doing that. There you go, Sean. Thanks so much. So again, I think as surgeons we're uh, used to making decisions on who to, who and when to operate on, uh, versus on based on the operative risk and the perceived benefit to the patient. Uh, unfortunately, in this uh, situation now with uh, the pandemic that we're all dealing with, we have um, additional considerations in trying to uh, allocate surgical resources. And these will, I think, be somewhat different, which is why I think we have a geographically diverse panel. So I'm going to present the perspectives uh, from, uh, from my local context, but also know that those apply widely. And so some considerations that uh, our leadership has taken into account in trying to develop policies and approaches to that we can distill down to the patient level include such considerations as uh, the community prevalence of infection. And I think that can uh, certainly be measured just not only in terms of cases, but also the pace of infections. And so that's been described in terms of the doubling rate, the active new case rate and the death rate. And we've certainly seen that the death rate can continue to climb even as infection rates may decline. We also particularly in it, uh, initially here at our institution, but I think uh, globally we've struggled with uh, accurate testing and screening. And we can certainly uh, have a lot of discussion over who should be screened and who should be tested. Because again, that somewhat depends on the clinical context as well as the community prevalence of infection. The other component to this that drives uh, how we decide who to operate on is, is, is sadly boils down to uh, somewhat the institutional and local supply of the things we need to protect ourselves and to protect our patients and also to operate. So that includes the supply of um, personal protective equipment, the supply of uh, surgical instruments and disposable surgical uh, um, elements such as gowns and drapes, Unfortunately, many of these things, at least from our context, came from China. So we had initial, uh, very early concerns and disruptions in supply chain. And then, of course, you have to take into account the local regulatory environment that really 
policy is being made by your local government, uh, your federal or national government, and uh, it's managing to some extent, trying to manage those policies as they apply to your institution. Next slide, please. So just to give you a little bit of a context for where we were coming from at the national or the state level, uh, we had a um, policy that came out just about three weeks ago that banned all elective surgery uh, in the state of Minnesota, and that was defined as any uh, procedure that could be delayed without undue harm to the patient. Now, that's a pretty broad and vague generalization, uh, but that basically eliminated all elective surgery, and that was consistent with policies made in other state jurisdictions and by other governors. Um, and we did that in the context of what was a fairly low prevalence of infection rate. So Minnesota, as of yesterday, had 36 uh, cases per 100,000. Our case fatality rate is certainly not really much different. The highest contiguous state is Michigan at 6.93. We have a fairly high hospitalization rate, but we were actually not terribly overwhelmed in terms of hospital resources looking after, um, after our patients. So we had predominantly community infection uh, without significant demands on the hospital, which uh, contrasts significantly with what is happening in uh, New York. And Dr. D'Angelica, I'm sure, can tell a very different story. So next slide, please. So um, what we have done at our institution is to try and triage cases into three categories. And I'll work from the bottom up because uh, I'd say the definitions are, are elective, semi-urgent, and urgent. And I think there's very little debate on what's urgent. Uh, there's some debate over what's elective, and there's a lot of debate around what is semi-urgent. Again, we're under a guideline that all elective surgery has to cease completely. So we've defined uh, elective surgery really as non-essential procedures that can be delayed with undue risk to the patient health. And they've also added the possibility of the surgical problems that can be dealt with by well-established local care. In other words, we're not accepting transfers from other areas if adequate care can be delivered uh, um, appropriately. <laughs> Urgent cases, I think, are slightly less controversial, and those are obviously things that are predominantly in hospital or emergency trauma problems, including unstable patients, where there's imminent risk of mortality and morbidity if the, if the operation is delayed and we've used a guideline of more than 24 hours. So this really kind of is non, relatively non-controversial. But where we've uh, had some moving target, and this is again where, where we have to modify the definitions depending on your local context, and your uh, institutional um, uh, resources is really around what constitutes semi-urgent. I think this is where a lot of the debate comes in because this is where many hepatobiliary diseases and hepatobiliary oncology comes in. So the current definition that we're using is active, stable medical issues that the risk of progression if prolonged deferral more than two weeks occurs. Now that two weeks is a relatively new uh, guidepost we originally, when we shut down all surgery, used eight weeks. We then decreased it to four weeks, and now we're down to two weeks as we're able to deliver more surgical care. And again, just kind of variations on that two-week theme that includes uh, progression to local unresectability or requiring an escalation of care if the procedure is not performed within two weeks. Um, and the, obviously, the other thing is to limit hospital resources. So any operation that could facilitate discharge of a patient um, uh, from the hospital. And finally, palliative uh, procedures where uh, undue suffering would occur and where medical management has been maximized. So that's kind of our the definitions that we're working on currently. And again, those, those can vary by, by, based on your context. Next slide, please. If we deem that a patient is uh, needs or requires either semi-urgent surgery, we have a screening process so that we um, basically call the patient or contact the patient six days before the proposed operative date. They are assessed for uh, screening questions including fever, cough, as well as exposure to any patients who have either under quarantine or been exposed to somebody who's under quarantine or tested positive to COVID-19. Uh, the patient is then listed, and then they need to arrive and have a nasal pharyngeal swab 
for COVID PC, uh, RNA, which is done by PCR, two days prior to that procedure. Then if that test is negative and our turnaround time is about uh, three to four hours on that test right now, they then present to the hospital one day prior to their surgery and undergo a CT scan of the chest. There are certainly uh, cases where patients have been PCR, COVID PCR negative, where we see ground glass infiltrates in the lung uh, on CT scan that subsequently become PCR positive. And so that is um, currently our screening protocol. The um, lesson that we have learned from this, however, is to, is to be very careful interpreting patients who have had thoracic radiation. So patients particularly, we had a number of patients fail their CT scan who had undergone neoadjuvant radiotherapy for gastroesophageal cancers, as well as uh, radiotherapy to uh, left lobe lesions where perhaps lung may have been exposed. And then if their CT scan and COVID PCR is negative, they're still under quarantine and that includes quarantine with no family members present for those six days. We are then able to bring them into the operating room and, uh, and proceed with their operation. Next slide, please. Uh, we have uh, some uh, procedures in the operating room that our anesthesia and operative teams are following. The patient is brought into the operating room uh, without any of the trays being opened. And then all of the staff, except for the anesthetist and one anesthesia assistant, uh, remains in the operating room with N95 and appropriate uh, respiratory and droplet precautions. Uh, the patient is then intubated and everyone must remain outside the operating room for 21 minutes. And that is what we've calculated as four circulating times of the air in the operating room. Once those 21 minutes have passed, uh, the staff, anesthesia staff can then remove their N95 mask. The remainder of the uh, staff can then attend to the operating room and proceed with the procedure under the understanding that in order to minimize resources, we have a minimal number of, of staff in the operating room and a minimal number uh, scrubbed. And that includes uh, elimination of all medical students and only the minimum number of necessary trainees to complete an operation safely. Once the operation is completed, the staff all then leave the operating room. Anesthesia re uh, returns and replace, uh, puts on their N95 masks and droplet precautions again, and the patient is extubated and remains in the operating room again for those 21 minutes and four circulating times. Next slide. So I think that that's kind of where, how we're handling things uh, at Mayo Clinic. Um, and uh, I'm happy to um, uh, continue on, or Tim, if you'd like me to address any of the questions uh, that have come up. Well, let me take one quick question. Do all of you use C chest CT in case of negative PCR before surgery? So maybe um, people can respond to that in the chat room, and maybe we can um, uh, thank Dr. Cleary for that great talk. We'll take additional questions at the end. Um, and I'll introduce our next speaker, uh, Dr. Magella Doyle, who is our treasurer of the AHPBA and an HPB in transplant surgeon at Washington University in St. Louis. Magella? Great. Thanks, Tim. Um, I'm unmuted, so I hope you can hear me. Uh, so I'm just going to talk um, a little bit about uh, transplants. And these uh, first few slides are from a webinar um, a few days ago um, via um, ASTS and some of the other transplant groups. Um, and so the data is from UNOS and it's relevant for, um, the, uh, for North America. Um, and so this is the current status of deceased donor transplants by week. So we can see um, back here in February, um, things were pretty normal. The top line is kidney, this is liver, and then these bottom two are the, the thoracic organs. So looking at liver and kidney um, and, and the other two also, but significant. The drop really happens around the week of March 2nd. Um, we see a significant decline in the number of transplants that have been done. There is some variability based on the location um, in the country, uh, but a significant drop nonetheless. You can go to the next slide, please. 
Now, uh, this corresponds to a significant drop in uh, deceased donation and uh, again occurred um, right uh, almost at the same uh, time you see the, the peak here and then a steep drop. Again, variations throughout the country. Uh, what's interesting and hasn't been documented yet and we're looking into it is, uh, but this is from anecdotal data from the OPOs talking to each other, the um, causes of death have have um, changed and there seems to be more overdoses. There's um, obviously there's significantly less use of lungs. Uh, people are very concerned about using um, lungs from any patient who has died, particularly if they have any kind of respiratory um, disease. And um, families, of course, are concerned about being in the hospital and going through the donation process. And so that's another reason why there's been a, cha a change in uh, the number of donors, uh, but also in the, um, the reason for donor deaths. And you can go to the next slide, Tim, please. Um, now, most centres um, stopped living donation um, right around this same week. And uh, we certainly stopped um, uh, kidney donation. The last one we did, I think, was in the first, um, within the first 10 days of March. And, um, and living donor livers also um, stopped. And um, there are still a few being done um, on the liver side, and these are probably some of the more urgent cases. When you look at the reasons people are on hold or not being transplanted, they added COVID as an option to um, uh, to the to donor net, and so we can see here from March 15th when this uh, was added that people are being held or put on hold for uh, for COVID reasons uh, much more commonly um, uh, than and patients were not being put on hold before this. So again, um, the majority of places really have pretty much stopped doing living donor, and I think this is uh, probably the correct way to go at least for now. Next slide. Um, so how have we done it? And, uh, Sean has given us a great um, uh, description of how they're doing it in the Mayo Clinic, and so I'm not going to go into that sort of detail. But what we used here at WashU was the American College of Surgeons Acuity Scale to try to classify. Each section was asked to classify their um, patients into um, the tiers. So the tier 3B being the highest acuity unhealthy patient who can't wait. 3A, uh, 2B, and 2A. And the recommendations from the American College were that um, for the present time, recommendations would be in treating patients who classify as 3A or 3B, but not 2A or less, um, uh, but obviously taken on a case-by-case -case basis. So we kind of classified our transplants into um, status one, um, kids and adults would, would qualify as a 3B, and patients, um, kids or adults with a PELD or a MELD of 29 or greater. Um, and uh, in addition, our HPV cancer cases, which I'm sure uh, Mike will talk about in a minute, you know, anybody who's post-chemo or who's ready for, um, for surgery or who can't wait, uh, we would also consider these patients um, high acuity. Um, and then some of the transplants who are maybe less sick, but um, maybe have cancers, for example, Hyler, that have finished their chemo and are ready for, um, for surgery, we would consider those uh, reasonably high acuity and to get them transplanted as well. And obviously, this is just what we're kind of focused on here in WashU, and it's going to be different for everywhere. As Sean said, it totally depends on the capacity of the hospital, um, the rate of, of COVID patients, the rise and the sharpness of the curve. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Currently, we're running at about 25 to 30% capacity in the whole hospital to keep ICU beds as our curve is still rising. It's a slow curve, but it's still um, increasing. Next. Uh, I think go one back one, Tim. So um, this is kind of one of the biggest things that has been discussed over the last few weeks within the transplant world because um, normally, traditionally, teams fly out to the hospitals to um, get donors, um, except if you live in a city like St. Louis where you have a donor center. And so UNOS recommended strongly from the beginning that local organ recovery should occur where possible so that there aren't other that there aren't teams mixing with other teams when they go out for um, for donation uh, and organ recovery. And it's an example of, of an OPO close to us, a transplant centre sent a team out and um, one person had um, turned out they had COVID on one of the doctors and ended up infecting um, a whole bunch of, of other people. And so um, 
trying to organize local recovery for abdominal organs has been very successful actually and um, is happening in in most places um, at least in the midwest now um, donor testing of course wasn't available in the beginning either and now that's kind of become pretty widespread and uh, i would say not many centers and certainly not ours are considering any uh, donors that have not been COVID tested negative um, and even if they're test negative and they still die from respiratory disease people are still pretty um, concerned about using those um, organs too. Um, and then recipient testing, um, to Sean's point, is a little more challenging for transplant because we don't always have that 12 to 24 hour period, which is what it's still taking here um, in, in um, St. Louis to get a test back. Uh, I know there are some places, and Mike can speak to it, I'm sure, where we have much faster uh, resulting with the testing, but, um, we may have to go to the operating room without a test back on the recipient. We treat them as if they're COVID positive and we all wear N95 masks in the operating room. Um, and as soon as the result comes back, obviously we revert back to normal, but we still think it's worth getting the test because if the recipient comes up positive, we can change their immunosuppression. And then I think I have one more slide. And this is really just to kind of um, talk about, we, you know, we have to manage the COVID patients who are acutely ill, but we also have to manage and think about the transplant patients. Um, and, and we really can't um, waste um, the scarce organs that we try to recover from donors. And so we need to limit the waste of organs, try to get patients, patients transplanted within this um, uh, crazy, uh, challenging time. So that's all I have. Um, so somebody had a question about in cadaveric donors, um, you get a negative PCR and a positive chest CT. Um, what do you do? I think that um, we personally would be pretty slow to use the organs because while it's probably going to be fine to transplant the liver or kidneys from a COVID positive donor, we don't know the answer. And we do know that the results are bad, which I didn't present in the, in the um, interest of time today, but the results are bad for patients who have had a transplant who get um, COVID uh, because of the immunosuppression. I think it makes them a little more susceptible to um, getting sick faster. Um, and so we don't want to risk anything until we know more. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So our um, next speaker is Dr. Uh, Michael D'Angelica, who is the president-elect of the AHPVA and a surgical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Mike. Hey, thanks, Tim. Hope you all can hear me. Um, I want to first start by saying um, this is new and uh, uh, very difficult for all of us. And for me to present what I'm about to present and tell you that I have all the answers is obviously not correct. We're learning literally daily and, and struggling daily with what the right or wrong answers are. And there's no question we'll get some of it right and we'll get some of it wrong. Um, I want to stay, start by saying with one thing. Uh, before I go into the slides, is that most of the HPV cancers we see, when we talk about mortality rates of COVID or any other disease, these are uniformly lethal cancers, and many of them can be lethal quickly. So let's just start with that basic idea before we start considering risks. But obviously, and you've heard this from all the speakers, when you um, have to think about how you're going to ta tackle your HPV cancer patients, it depends completely on the place you're working, and the local rates and projection of COVID, PPE availability, ICU ventilator availability, testing availability, people have gotten and started discussing the routine preoperative testing, which we now do as well. We also have to consider that I think most of us are starting to understand this is not going to just simply go away. It will be with us for a while, probably until we have a vaccine. And we're going to all have to deal with risk until that vaccine um, uh, is developed and as an example in new york you don't have to i don't have to present numbers because it's on cnn fox and every other news outlet you can imagine daily but new york is the epicenter of the u.s but i'm working in a unique hospital that doesn't really have a public emergency room and while we have a lot of covid patients we are not overwhelmed so we have actually struggled a lot with the cancer question uh next next slide 
So again, most of the cancers we deal with are aggressive. Pancreatic adenocarcinoma, cholangiocarcinoma, liver metastases, primary liver cancers. These are tumors that in general, uh, you can lose windows. These can progress over the course of months, sometimes weeks. But we do occasionally deal with some indolent tumors. And as you start thinking about how you want to manage these patients, you have to consider someone with a pancreatic adenocarcinoma completely different from, say, a neuroendocrine tumor or a carcinoid tumor. Uh, other indolent, less risky tumors are high-risk IPMN patients, uh, small benign ampullary adenomas, uh, and even sometimes maybe papillary bile duct tumors. But anybody who ever struggles with prognostication in cancer knows that there's a huge problem because not every cancer acts the same. Some uh, tumors that are considered aggressive can be indolent. Intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is an example of that. There are plenty of indolent cases. And, uh, and some indolent tumors can be aggressive. Some endocrine tumors are actually intermediate grade and can progress relatively quickly. Um, and also, our ability to diagnose cancers or masses is not always perfect. Um, and certainly, our ability to figure out which ones are aggressive based on a scan or a biopsy is highly imperfect. And I think we're starting with that difficulty right there. Next slide. I think back one, yeah. So this, it doesn't probably project very well, but I wanted to point out a lot of us are using the selective, oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, surgery acuity scale. And I think this is the first thing we probably went to when we started struggling with what to do with our, our cancer patients. And then you can see when you sort of get to the more urgent cases, it says tier 3A, most cancers. And so, I mean, uh, again, I'll come back to the concept and I think as we consider the risk of COVID, the risk of these cancers is infinitely higher for the most part. And a lot of your ability to treat it comes down to what your resources are. And while some hospitals in New York simply cannot do any surgery because they simply don't have operating rooms, uh, if you do have the ability, these are some of the patients you'd have to consider for treatment. Uh, next slide. So this is a really interesting, oh, keeps going forward. Uh, Tim, can you go back? Yeah, so this is a real, really interesting study that actually, oh no, that's not it. Which one? Mike? One after, oh, I guess it went ahead too. No, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, Tim, go back to that last one. So the SSO has tried to tackle this, and I actually read this publication that Dave Bartlett put out and a group from the SSO and the Annals of Surgical Oncology. And you know, it's really not based on any data, it's based on intuition. But I can tell you, if you look at the HPV section, it's a little confusing. And it sort of, in my mind, sort of gets at the, how, how difficult this is. It starts out by saying, basically, operate on all patients with aggressive HPV malignancies, as indicated. I think that means treat them with surgery if possible. It does also say, consider postponing surgery with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now, that makes a presumption that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is safer than surgery. And we do not need to know that's true. The idea of a patient or especially an older patient coming into the hospital every two weeks for immunosuppressive chemotherapy is not necessarily safer than an operation. So I, I think we have to be real careful about that. I think we do have to consider the, some of the benign tumors we see and that's referred to as well. This last, this third comment I also struggled with a little bit. Again, use neoadjuvant chemo, ablation, stereotactic radiosurgery instead of surgery for metastases. A lot of those treatments would be considered um, uh, compromises compared to surgery ideal treatment necessarily and again not necessarily safer whether you come in for an operation or an ablation you're still getting exposed to a hospital so it's not a simple uh defer from surgery if possible uh next slide this was the uh yeah this is a really interesting study it, it, it's got somewhat limited by by the data of course um but this is actually not quite out in electronic press yet, but it is out on social media. It's a study by Karan Turaga from the University of Chicago looking at um, the NCDB and looking at multiple cancers and lots of very fancy multivariable modeling that I will not go into. But they're really uh, trying to estimate the effect of delay of surgery by one week intervals for various malignancies. And they sort of come up with an inflection point where survival starts to decrease compared to the week before. There's a lot of easy ways to, to, to um, criticize this, but it comes up with a safe postponement period. And if you can see 
The green in that in that figure is the typical wait time for most cancers, and at the bottom is liver, biliary cancers, pancreas, and gallbladder. But you can see survival starts to decrease with only a matter of weeks away, and this has been shown in many studies. And again, not a perfect study, but it just makes the point that the, the cancers that we deal with uh, are, are aggressive frequently. You can lose windows sometimes in a matter of weeks, and certainly can in a certain matter of months. Uh, next slide. Yes, so what's the other side of this coin? How risky is it for cancer patients? I hate to say this, but this report in The Lancet from China is probably the best data we have on 18 patients. They looked at almost 1,600 uh, COVID cases, uh, almost 600 uh, Chinese hospitals. 18 patients in this cohort had a history of cancer. And actually, most of them were only on routine follow-up rather than active treatment. But what they did see, and you see on this figure, is a much higher incidence of severe events, which they largely defined as ICU admissions uh, compared to the general population. Uh, and these were all COVID-related. And so uh, the cancer history independently associates with a worse outcome. I don't think that's surprising to anybody. You're older, you have cancer, you're being treated for cancer, uh, you're going to be at higher risk for events. The issue is what's of the higher risk, the COVID or their cancer themselves, and it's an imperfect thing, but I, in general, most of the cancers we deal with will be higher risk than COVID. Uh, next slide. So I'll try to end with this with some final thoughts. In general, HPV cancers are highly lethal malignancies that essentially have a mortality of 100% if left untreated, and some of them, and many of them, can rapidly progress. I would say they are more lethal than COVID. Uh, you can lose windows of opportunity. Tumors can progress and become unresectable. And I still think that for most of these cancers, as long as you have the resources, surgery is often the best bang for the buck. It's a single event. It's not stretched out over the course of months like chemotherapy is. Um, and I would say that I think some surgeons are sort of suggesting that chemotherapy, radiation, embolization, other procedures are safer. We don't necessarily know that's true. Ultimately, it comes down to what and where the resources lie. I think some delays were inevitable, even in our hospital, as we were not overwhelmed. We delaying, we're delaying for weeks, but currently opening up as things plateau in New York. Um, and if you have to delay, obviously you use alternative treatments that are available. Um, and of course, and you've heard about this already, you have to create systems that make the hospital in the OR as safe as possible. possible. You've heard all the examples of how to use PPE and routine testing, which we now do. We've actually found that three or four percent of our pre-ops are asymptomatic carriers and you have to quarantine as necessary. So I'll end there and look forward to any questions at the end. Thank you, Dr. G. Angelica. Um, and I know uh, folks are putting their questions in the question room. I'm, I'm trying to um, answer some of them. The functionality of the GoToWebinar is a little bit clunky, um, so it's difficult for many people to um, discuss the questions. Um, we're going to move on now to Dr. Uh, Kent. Uh, Dr. Tara Kent, um, as all of you know, has been extremely uh, instrumental in many of our education and training um, councils and programs and committees in the HPBA. She's an HPB, HPB surgeon at the Beth Israel Deaconess. And because of her expertise um, in education, we've asked her to talk about some of the educational training issues as they relate to COVID-19. Dr. Kent? Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Uh, what I'm presenting today are more considerations and con some of our concerns that have arisen during the pandemic and frankly raise more questions than uh, providing answers. Um, of course, in general, at every level of training, we, the trainees and those of us who supervise trainees are concerned about the loss of operative experience occurring due to uh, variable OR scheduling at this time. Um, as has already been noted, this depends on the status of the pandemic and incidence of cases uh, at the differing institutions and in location by geographic variation. And this has varied from some centers where absolutely no non-urgent cases are being undertaken uh, to some cancer cases being able to be undertaken depending on ICU availability to all cancer cases being able to be done. But in general, many uh, trainees can expect fewer 
uh, HPV or cancer cases in many states. And this has been already ongoing now for a duration of one to two months, but likely will extend longer for uh, several months and perhaps intermittently over time until a vaccine is available. In addition, uh, we're experiencing loss of clinical opportunities for training outside of the operating room in terms of patient management and multidisciplinary evaluations as uh, trainees in, at, at the resident level for sure, and in some cases at the fellow level are, uh, have alternate schedules where now they may have chunked time on site, uh, alternating with work from home in order to limit, limit COVID exposure. Um, in addition, many multidisciplinary clinics uh, may have been canceled or as, as ours have been converted to virtual conferences with then televisits to follow. This brings up a secondary issue of uh, that many of us are, as faculty are not really trained at all in telemedicine and so now our trainees uh, will require training in this uh, form of care as well. Um, in the time of the surge of uh, COVID, a peak number of new cases. Trainees certainly are being redeployed to other services, and this again varies depending on the uh, on the area, and but has may include emergency general surgery, ICU care, or even uh, working down in the emergency department. And in our institution, this is including residents, but also some of our fellows. Uh, there also may be less availability of other services with whom HPV services work closely, like uh, ERCP and interventional radiology. Another question that has arisen is the adequacy of supervision. Uh, this is uh, coming into play given the other potential responsibilities of faculty and also the efforts to streamline care teams at both the trainee and faculty level. So supervision for clinical care may uh, occur with more than or other than the usual HPV surgeons if uh, surgeons are in a rotating pool to, uh, again, limit exposure and consolidate <laughs> care. And uh, fewer trainees are on site at a time compared to normal, which can certainly require a different level of work or, or patient care required. Can you go to the next slide, please? Um, we have of course, concern about the safety of trainees in terms of adequacy of uh, PPE, which again varies from location to location, but has been uh, an issue in many places, um, as well as the availability of testing as needed in order to ensure that trainees are uh, as safe as possible in this time of, of heightened risk for COVID. Um, along with that, it's uh, important that to note that with the need for adjusted schedules, they uh, still have to be able to have leave as needed in order for illness or exposure if that should occur. And uh, another consideration is the ability to continue with previously planned or currently planned formal teaching sessions um, as well as conferences. In many cases, we've been able to transfer the teaching sessions, journal clubs, preoperative planning conferences to virtual uh, platforms, as well as M&M and Grand Rounds, which either are virtual in many places or have been canceled in others, depending on the, uh, on the, oh, how overwhelmed the, the institutions are. The bigger conferences and meetings have been canceled, as all of us are aware, which is uh, impacting learning opportunities, networking, presentation of research, among other things. Uh, can you go to the next slide, please? So at the resident level, looking at, for example, chief residents who may be preparing to head on to fellowship, uh, there are concerns with uh, potentially loss of experience in these final months of residency, which might impact their uh, comfort at the start of fellowship. Uh, in addition, there may be challenges in obtaining licenses in their new uh, location for fellowship, visas for some, as well as identifying li uh, living arrangements. And certainly also of import is ability to prepare for and then take the general surgery boards and importantly the personal stressors that are coming up in this time which apply to everybody at all levels with uh, including challenges in family visiting child care among other things and at the fellowship level fellows uh, may be impacted may find a, an impact in their ability to complete their expected clinical training experience which can impact their initial attending practice potentially it may be more challenging to look for and obtain or nail down a post-fellowship uh, first position. And some, there are hiring freezes in many locations, which as well may impact our fellows in obtaining their positions. Uh, 
And the concerns I've listed below, which are same for fellows and residents in terms of moving challenges and personal stressors impact on wellness. Can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, programmatically, I, I just would note, as has already been mentioned, that the impact on an individual training in an individual program will vary uh, from location to location. And here I've just included two examples from the uh, COVID health data website, one from Washington State and one from Massachusetts, highlighting the difference in time of the, um, of the peak uh, use of resources. So, these are going to have different impacts on the fellows in their different geographic locations. But um, programmatically, there have been some allowances by both uh, at the ACGME level as well as uh, the American Board of Surgery and anticipating that at the fellowship level as well. Uh, but there remain a lot of questions, which certainly is causing some significant amount of concern and uh, anxiety for our trainees. Um, and again, as noted, the experience can vary by state by state, uh, this can the busyness associated with the pandemic is certainly impacting a program director and faculty me mentorship and may be providing additional or creating additional challenges in those areas. Um, and I'll stop there. I'm looking forward to taking questions and uh, having discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was incredibly informative, and we deeply appreciate it. So I want to introduce um, our last speaker. Uh, Dr. D. Martinez, who is an AHPBA member and professor of surgery, as well as the chairman of the Department of Surgery, uh, Department of Visceral Surgery um, in Lausanne, Switzerland. Um, and we're very happy that Nicholas is with us today. So, uh, Nicholas, we're going to turn it over to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Timothy, for having me. And uh, you asked me what we have learned. Uh, we have learned that the world, the world is changing from this, next slide, to that, next slide again, yes. The world is changing. And what we have realized is that uh, China is very far away. Suddenly we realized that uh, Italy was very closed and our big luck was uh, we could anticipate the preparation due to uh, the, what's happened in Italy. When it's happened in China, we take that uh, into consideration, but it is uh, 6,000 miles away, so we were not so concerned. If you look at this curve, this is the prevalence here in Europe, we make that by 10,000 inhabitants. You see the first one was Spain, followed by Switzerland, but close by you have the US. Next slide. And uh, on the next slide, I'm sorry to come back on this, but uh, what is interesting to notice on this slide is that the first case in the United States was declared on the 23rd of January. Next slide. And uh, uh, the first case in Italy was uh, uh, in the a week later. And if you look at this, uh, at this dramatic uh, graph, which is the daily confirmed new cases, you see that in Europe, it was a disaster at the beginning. Italy, Spain, France, and uh, you say that the USA is jumping very high. Next slide, please. The big question is what happened during this time interval? Uh, we were lucky that we had the example from Italy and we could anticipate, anticipate to prepare our hospital and our department to change the, the way we are performing surgery. Next slide. This is the reorganization of surgery. You see on the left side when it started, you see the number of patients. You see the first death uh, relatively early in March in our hospital. Next. Then you will see uh, the, or how we reorganized surgery. The OR capacity was shut down by 40%. In the same time, the ICU capacity was increased by 450% from 11 COVID beds to 61. We had, uh, beside of that, 25 beds for non-COVID patients that we could still uh, apply. Next. You see here the operation we performed on the left side before the epidemic started, really, even if we had already the first death patient. On the right side, you see the operation we performed when the epidemic was started and the operating room was uh, shut down. Show me, please, the next slide. 
You see 75 hours versus 32 hours. It was how uh, we decrease our operation capacity. Next slide, please. So that's how it's worked. We made a comparison between what we have done during the March 2019 and the March 2020. You see, this is a dramatic decrease in elective surgery, uh, also in emergency. And we just realized recently that all patients coming to the hospital this very week, they are coming either with uh, perforated appendicitis or very ugly cholecystitis with abscesses. We have never seen so much. People are really scared to come to the hospital and they, they wait too long. And they are wrong because the number of hospital healthcare workers who were positive for COVID is 1.6%, so very low. We were concerned because the first Chinese data published in JAMA uh, in uh, January, February, they were speaking about 30% contamination of uh, healthcare worker in the hospital. And in our hospital up today was 1.6%. So you see this dramatic decrease in surgical activity was not dangerous for the non-COVID patients, and was not dangerous for the healthcare worker. And we are not using the Ebola style uh, mask and clothing. We are just using uh, the same surgical mask shun as just at the moment on the picture. And uh, of course, the, the shirts, the gloves, and the highly hand disinfection that we have routinely in Switzerland. Next slide. We did something similar that Shen mentioned at the beginning. Uh, we had also uh, uh, classified the operation in urgent, semi-urgent, and elective with the same discussion uh, you just mentioned before. And uh, actually, uh, we, we, we were thinking, how can we do for our HPB cases uh, in non-COVID patients if we have to further decrease the operating room capacity? So we have three options. They were also uh, mentioned by Mike. You can increase the delay to the operation. You can modify the treatment sequences, for example, for metastasis, where you, you change, you make longer chemotherapy, or you can change the strategy. Next slide, Tim, please. Thank you. You see here three examples for pancreas cancer. You can introduce an neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I know there is still a lot of controversies, although we have now an increasing body of evidences that the neoadjuvant chemotherapy should be used all the time. It's not the case in Europe now, but we could think about this crisis to rethink based on the recently published data that we should put a neoadjuvant chemotherapy to a pancreas cancer patient. For the liver metastasis, we are doing a lot of reverse treatment with very advanced liver metastasis. And in these cases, we can consider to prolong the chemotherapy or even to jump to an intra-arterial chemotherapy prior to liver resection. And in case of resectable uh, HCC, uh, we can make a radioembolization and then uh, we can perform the operation in uh, three months. All what you see on this slide was the, was the thinking because if we have to postpone the patient due to the COVID crisis, it is not for two weeks, it is at least for two months. And that's why we had to make a, a change of strategy if necessary. Next slide. I think, yes, no, uh, next slide. Sorry, this was a mistake. There's every country asks herself about the epidemic. So the question is, how can we flatten the, the, the curve? You see on the left side, the left side in red, what happened when the healthcare system is completely overrun by the mass of patients. That's what happened in Italy. That's what's happening in East France. And that's what's happening in some hospital in New York. Next, please. All the question we have is where are we compared to the peak? And uh, we just have the feeling in some places in Italy, in Germany, and also in Switzerland that we are now on the other side of the peak. And uh, it's very surprising because I just heard this afternoon some information of the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York <coughs> uh, by uh, Patricia uh, that uh, they are also observing a decrease in the 
augmentation of the cases. So we are in the middle of the crisis, but maybe we can have some optimistic signal. I hope so. We'll see. I think it was my sl last slide, uh, Timothy. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Thank you I had just one question that someone asked regarding, are you testing healthcare workers? Uh, no. Yeah. We are testing, we are testing all surgical patients prior to the operation. And uh, we are very lucky because we get the results of the test uh, within four to six hours. And then uh, we test them the day prior to the operation. If they have uh, symptoms, we will add a CT scan, and if it's confirmed, we will postpone the operation. And then we were testing only the symptomatic healthcare worker. And the healthcare worker symptomatic, which were tested, very interesting, the COVID positive number was low, 17% based on 1,700 healthcare workers symptomatic tested in our region. So it's pretty low. Thank you, Nicholas. And that's our experience also is not routine testing, but only targeted testing among uh, individuals who may be symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So that was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank our speakers. We are also incredibly lucky to have um, a panel of uh, past presidents, including Dr. Coimbre, Dr. Vote, and Dr. Landwehr. I would like to maybe ask um, maybe uh, Dr. Vote to um, give us his impression of things at um, MD Anderson. We heard the memorial experience, and I'd be interested to hear from Nick. And then I'd like Felipe and Javier maybe to share with us just a little bit about the experience in South America. We've heard about the United States experience. Nicholas has shared with us a little bit about the European experience. So I'd like to hear something about the uh, South American experience. So Nick, why don't you start us off? Just give us your impressions. So we um, good good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Tim, for the excellent uh, uh, panel here. Uh, uh, very informative, and thank you to the speakers and the HPBA for organizing. Um, as far as, as Houston and Texas, we have uh, been um, uh, resetting resetting the way we approach um, our patients, essentially rebooting the way we functioning and we working. And um, it has been for us a sort of uh, um, a retreat. Uh, and um, we have uh, emphasized for several years uh, multidisciplinary uh, care. So uh, as indicated by, uh, by Nicolas de Martin, we have um, um, uh, reviewed again uh, all our approaches um, to uh, various uh, disease sites. And, um, and then we have basically uh, really cut down on our uh, operations from uh, uh, 500 um, uh, operations a week to less than 100 now and and this this is the time for the mitigation for us we want to uh, um, um, not only um, be safe for our patients but safe for our healthcare worker professionals and trainees so um, we have um, um, increase the delay uh, um, of preoperative chemotherapy uh, or preop radiation for colorectal liver metastasis and uh, and pancreas cancer uh, for instance and uh, uh, we are now um, basically ready to uh, uh, go back uh, reopen but with new ways of um, of, of functioning and, uh, and that will be different, uh, different ways of functioning. We wanted also to um, uh, spare our PPEs and, uh, and this has been uh, time, I think, to, to wait for us. And now we'll be functioning differently. And there'll be a lot of virtual consultation with patients, uh, um, patients who live uh, more than 150 miles from Houston um, have not been accepted up until now. Uh, if they have colorectal cancer or pancreas cancer, we have conducted the virtual consultation. The pre-op chemotherapies are given locally. And uh, we will um, now um, that we have more PPEs, masks for every, um, every um, employee, we will return to work. We're gradually returning to work, in fact. 
and uh, we are testing all the patients uh, uh, when they come for their first consultation and the day before surgery. So we will be functioning differently in the operating room. We heard that from, uh, from Sean Cleary. We'll be functioning differently preoperatively with less visits, less consultation. I think it's a, it's a challenge, but also um, uh, an opportunity for us to learn. And we won't have also uh, a lot of follow-up uh, clinics. We will be learning um, how to follow our patients long distance. We're making rounds also. I've operated only a few patients uh, in the past two or three weeks, and uh, we're using FaceTime for rounds. Thank you so much, Nick. We really appreciate you sharing the MD Anderson experience. Felipe and Javier, I was wondering if maybe each of you could just chime in uh, relatively uh, brief comments about your experiences um, in Brazil, Argentina, South America. Maybe Felipe, why don't you yeah. start us off? Okay, so uh, thank you very much. Greetings uh, to everyone. Congratulations for the initiative. Excellent presentations. Uh, well, I'd like to just to, to update what's happening, at least in Brazil and probably most uh, countries of South America. Uh, so I'd like to give as an example what we are doing. So at our institution, AC Camargo, uh, we have planned uh, a different uh, scenarios. So depending on what's happening uh, on in São Paulo, especially, uh, we have different scenarios to, to play on. So uh, in the beginning, we postponed most of our uh, non-urgent urgent, uh, surgeries, and now we are uh, actually reviewing it because uh, uh, what's happening is that, for example, in the beginning of the crisis, uh, we, we, we delayed most of the surgeries, for example, for one month, if possible, of course, not those urgent or patients that would have uh, uh, changed their, their prognostic. But for example, what happened was that, so now the, the, the planned surgery is coming and the pandemic is still the same in Brazil, you know? So I agree uh, with Mike and with some others, we have to review it. And, and maybe once we don't know when the pandemic uh, uh, is finished or if it goes into 2021 or into the vaccine, uh, we don't know if we have a second peak I think uh, uh, we should uh, go for uh, surgery uh, in a very uh, safe way, but if patients uh, have an elective, but uh, for example, an oncological surgery, we may have to plan it uh, as we were going without the pandemic. Uh, we, what we do now for these patients, we are trying to, to build a, like a, a COVID-free pathway so we do the same, we do a clinical questionnaire, we, we do preoperative, we're starting this week to do preoperative COVID, uh, PCR, but we still try to do a, a preoperative CT on the day before, and uh, thinking that maybe uh, uh, if the patients are false negative, uh, we still can, can get these patients uh, uh, in, with the CT in some cases. And one important thing here is that uh, maybe we can get these patients in a pulmonary phase. So they, it, it would be very bad to have a, a, a respiratory distress like two or three days of after surgery. So we are trying to, to give many covers of safety uh, before the surgery. So I think these are the most important uh, topics I'd like to, to discuss and I am very glad to participate here. Thank you, thank you guys. Thank you, Felipe. Javier, uh, maybe you can share your experience with us from our Argentina. Yeah, you know, Tim, first I, I, I want to, congr to congratulate the, all the panel because, as you know, in, in America, in Latin America, we are learning from Europe and view, from US because this is an advantage for us. We are far from the peak. In Argentina, we have 2,500 2, cases with only 105 deaths. So we are really far and we are trying to uh, get in the core, trying to get the curve low of contagious. But um, there are, from your point of view, I understand that all of you said that something that we should underline. You are treating and are protecting all the medical staff, the surgical medical staff, when you don't have a test prior to surgery, 
as you are treating a COVID patient. I mean, I, I, I can summary this from Magella, from Mike, and from, and from all of you, that comment. I, I want to congratulate uh, uh, Nicola that said that has only 1.5 health employment infected. But the reality of other countries is that this, this is around 15% to 20% infected in, 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 in many institutions. So I want to ask you two things. If you agree that if you don't have regularly testing, you should protect all the surgical staff in any case as there is a COVID patient. And the second question is something that is real concern now, that is the minimally invasive surgery in this, in this, at this time. What are your feelings and what are your concerns about the minimally invasive surgeries and the small protection devices? So thank you, Javier. We, we, um, we have been discussing that in the question in chat room. Um, we're running a little short on time. I wanna be respectful of people's time. Um, so um, I, I'll briefly share um, what I've seen in the chat room. It seems like there's still a fair amount of heterogeneity in how people are handling MIS cases. There was a joint um, um, recommendation from SAGES and the HPBA earlier this week. And I think there's still uh, ambiguity around uh, one whether one should favor MIS versus open, given the concern for viral spread and laparoscopic uh, gases. And so um, I know that there has been concern around potential need for empiric use of N95 during laparoscopic cases. There's also been some um, institutions that have um, moved away from doing laparoscopic cases and preferred to do more open. And then there have been um, uh, institutions that have been using uh, smoke evacuators or filters. So I think it's an ongoing um, topic of discussion. Um, I think with regards to provider protection, uh, I know at our institution at Ohio State, we're, we've been adopting a three-pronged approach where we have a very aggressive protocol for empiric N95 usage for any aerosolizing generating procedure. And we have a specific list that denotes which procedures that would be included. Um, we allow all of our providers to wear N95 masks for anyone who is COVID-19 positive or a PUI, a patient under investigation. And then just today, I had an hour and a half phone conversation discussing routine preoperative testing, uh, similar to what Dr. Clary outlined is already happening at the Mayo. And then finally, um, just universal N95 donning for all operative cases, regardless of what procedure is being done. And obviously that um, is impacted by local uh, rationing issues with regards to how many N95 masks are on hand um, given the um, incidence and prevalence of the disease um, in the uh, local community. So I think with that, we um, are going to um, need to conclude. Um, I want to um, be sure that I recognize Dr. Mariano Jimenez um, from uh, Buenos Aires University. Mariano uh, um, had the idea of having this uh, webinar, so I want to fully recognize and, and give him credit uh, for um, having this as his brainchild. So thank you, Mariano. I similarly want to thank um, our speakers uh, today, um, Dr. Clary Doyle, D'Angelica, uh, Ken and Dee Martinez, as well our, as our esteemed uh, past president uh, uh, panel discussants uh, for a, a great webinar. We will be collecting all of the answer, all the questions that were asked today on the uh, webinar in the question and chat room and we will try to come up with some type of uh, FAQ to respond to any issues um, that we did not uh, get to uh, today. So once again, I'd like to thank all of you for your support of the AHPBA. We're here for our members, and we hope that this webinar uh, provided our AHPBA members a service today. And we sincerely thank all of you for everything that you do on the front line to take care of our patients um, in this challenging time. So I sign off wishing you all uh, the best of health and to stay well, uh, protect yourselves, your colleagues, your patients and your family. Thank you very, very much.